Well, turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Middle of your Bible, you'll hit Psalms. Two books over is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. Are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Havel of Havels, says the preacher. Havel of Havels. All is Havel. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the reading of God's holy and powerful and inspired word. Indeed. You can have a seat. Well, congregation, you and I are going to die someday. You and I are going to die. And I don't begin that way uh, for a sensational introduction to grab your attention or to establish a need to listen, though I hope you are doing that. Uh, I mean it. You and I are going to die one day. This is the reality Ecclesiastes wants us to reckon with daily. It's not something we think about often, We often neglect the fact that uh, our life is passing before our very fingers and life is short, that life is havel. But it is the truth that is set before the preacher in Ecclesiastes uh, with regard to everything he says. You and I will die. Um, I'm reading this commentary by Zach S. Swine from in Ecclesiastes. It's helpful on some things. He talks about the unexpected God. And I just thought, you know, I'm just going to read this because I can't put it any better. Pastor uh, S. Swine writes, To receive God's voice in this book is to learn that God is not afraid to use language that is personal, poetic, filled with unanswered questions and saturated with unsettling statements to reveal himself. It also seems that we are meant to see that God is quite willing to invite us into a book and a life 
in which we walk toward the end without everything being fixed, answered, or settled before we get there. This means that God can, quote, go there, end quote. But because of the safe, clean-cut, pristine, sentimental, and naive approaches to Christianity and the church that have mentored us so often, we cherish a mistaken notion of God that resembles a more G-rated approach to life. There is a kind of authenticity, S. Wine writes, that God is willing to set before us in this book that would make many of us who pride ourselves on transparency clam up. It is as if God plays the you-think-that's-bad game with us. To whatever we say, he says, you think that's bad? Let me tell you something more. Ecclesiastes seems like one of God's ways to say to us, this world and your life are more broken than you now realize. And what God created for us is more satisfying than we believe. Like Adam and Eve, we too still strive for things out there and damage ourselves in the process, all the while God's gift and presence were right in front of us. He is right. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is like a punch in the gut. Uh, he says, as Pastor Eswine says, uh, he goes there, or most of us don't want to be taken. The preacher goes there, and he says, you will die. One day you will die. It may be today. We don't know. And he wants to know if you're ready to live, actually. Because those who are ready to die are those who truly are ready to live. So I want to speak to you today about the merry-go-round of life. You know those red circular things in elementary school? You go around and around and around and around. Well, that's how life feels sometimes. I have seven points and a couple of takeaways at the end. Okay, a merry-go-round of life. Point number one, all is Havel. Uh, verse two, Havel of Havels, says the preacher. Havel of Havels, all is Havel. Every speech has a title, good ones at least. And this speech from the preacher is no different. And he's saying to us, everything is temporary. A mere breath. In fact, the word Havel, as we learned last week, by the way, some of what is said today in the, in the sermon will build off last week, so if you missed last week, we know that Havel does not mean meaningless or vanity or futile. Life is brief. Life is short. Life is a mere breath. In fact, the very uh, word Havel is a onomatopoeia, so 
That's, that's the, it's a living illustration of what, the, of what the word means. That's life to us. The very way we breathe is the very way we ought to take life. Short. It's a breath. It's a mist. And it's passing by. Everything, he says, all is Havel. Your life, the fruit of your labor, it's all very short. Uh, Number two, there's a logical question from this then. If life is so brief, life is so short, well, he says, verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So all his Havel, then you have this logical question, point two. Uh, Is there any profit then? To working so hard in life? If life is so short, why should I break my back for it? When it's all, when it's all said and done, is my life, the preacher saying, is my life going to be in the black? Financially or otherwise? D- do you get the logic? Man, life feels so short. We're just on this merry-go-round of life. And, and I want to know, the preacher wants to know, he wants you to ask, then why work so hard? Is there a gain? The question is not, is there a purpose? The question is, is there advantage to it all? Now, I believe that God does not give us the answer to this question in chapter 1, at least in full. He's he's a better preacher than that, you could say. He wants you to, to sit with this. As we said last week, he's not interested in theological platitudes or naive statements or cliches, uh, pad answers. That's not what this preacher is about. He wants you to struggle with life and to wrestle with the question, he's not going to answer this right away. In fact, he's, he's going to make things actually a little worse before it gets better. So he's not interested in making life simple for us, which is how we often want life to be. Uh, third, there's a challenging realism. All of life is Havel, it's a mist, there's a logical question. There's a challenging realism. Verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. How about that? Now, if I would have wrote verse 4, I would have written a generation comes and a generation goes. Because that's how I view life. I come, into exist- I, I, I come into existence, I get life, and then I'm dead. But not the preacher in Ecclesiastes. A generation goes and then comes. Why does he write that? I think because, again, he has death on his mind. You're not, you're not coming anywhere. No, you're going And you're going to be gone soon. So he writes, a generation goes first because 
That's what we want on our minds. That's what we need embedded upon our souls. We go first. We go now. And a generation, well, a generation comes. Beloved, the only thing we leave behind when we die is the earth we lived on. Only now it spins without us. We die, it spins, and it does not remember you. A generation goes, and a generation comes. It's a realism we often neglect, isn't it? Cancer will get someone else, not me. Until, of course, it does. There's a challenging realism to the preacher in Ecclesiastes. He wants you to think about your life. He wants you to think about your death. It's all fleeting. We're going, and a generation comes. Then the generation will go, and then another generation will come, and then that generation will go. Four, there's creation circuit. There's a pattern to the poetry here. There's creation is on a circuit. Verses five to seven. The sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. There's a circuit, there's a pattern to the poetry, and he lists here uh, uh, three phenomena that describe uh, life in this fallen world. He first talks about the sun there in verse 5, this massive ball of gas and heat that impacts everything in our solar system. Everything revolves around uh, the sun, it's just sheer majesty and glory, power and fire. And yet, uh, it's true, Psalm 19 declares the glory of God, but that's not the way creation is depicted here in Ecclesiastes 1. He simply says the sun rises and the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. He's saying even the sun chases its tail. Even this majestic, uh, massive ball of gas and heat that we just are amazed at at times, even that thing, what is it doing? It's chasing its own tail. It's going round and round. After all, it's not that spectacular. It rises, it sets, then goes to the place where it rises again. Great. There's a circuit to creation. Uh, verse 6, the wind. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. On its circuit, the wind returns. The wind, that which is most chaotic and random and, and unpredictable, you get behind a rock to shield yourself from the wind, and what happens? The wind changes direction and gets you then. You go around the other side of the rock, and there's the wind again. It's random. It's chaotic. It's so unpredictable. But even the wind, 
There's this circuit about it. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. And the streams. Well, the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. That's interesting. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. How is that possible? The streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. And we think, oh, the water cycle. We think the preacher's talking about the water cycle. That's not the point. I've wondered why the preacher depicts creation like this all week, wrestling with this. Why, why does Ecclesiastes 1 talk about creation a little bit differently than, let's say, most of the Bible? And I think it's because creation is just like you. We go round and around, and we wonder from day to day, what is the gain? What is the profit? Look at verse 5 again. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens. Literally, it, it returns panting. So the sun is, is tired. All in a day's work. I just had everything revolve around me, and I'm just so tired. Even, even the sun has a havel. Even the sun is panting. Is, is there gain in what I'm doing here by giving heat to everything in life? And I think the, the question, the, the, the burden the preacher wants us to wrestle with is, you and I are just like creation. We go round and round on the merry-go-round of life, and we wonder, what is it all for? Again, he's seeking to bother you. To pretend, beloved, that this life is anything different than this is a fool's errand. And to get upset or frustrated about the mundane things of life, the diapers, the laundry, the, the dishes, the dinners, the kids, the rinse and repeat. To get upset and frustrated that it's anything different is absolute folly. Learn wisdom, he says. You're no better than creation. Even creation is on the merry-go-round of this world. Number five, uh, life is unsatisfying. Life is unsatisfying. Verse eight, all things are full of weariness. Man, life is tiring. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. There will never come a time in your life, beloved, where you can say, I'm full. I've seen it all. I've heard it all. 
I've done it all. This is it. I'm full. He says, uh, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. We search and search for something in life to break the repetitive cycle of the mundane. Something to do, something to have, uh, that house, uh, that job, whatever it may be, something to be new that will give us gain. And the preacher says, not here. There's nothing here to ultimately satisfy you. And nothing you do is going to break the cycle of life. Nothing. Implication, rest of Ecclesiastes, enjoy the temporary for what it is. That's it. Enjoy life for what it is because you're not getting off this merry-go-round. So enjoy the life God has given you in front of you. Enjoy what life is as temporary, what you have, not for what you don't have. Life is unsatisfying. There will always be. That is until sky rolls back, Christ ascends again for his bride. That, the new creation, that is when you can say, oh, now I'm full. Now I'm full. Six. Uh, There is nothing new. Nothing is new. Verses 9 and 10. What has been is what will be. Told you it was getting worse. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. I love Ecclesiastes. I don't talk like this. I need this. Whatever you plan to do in life has already been done. Exploration is still exploration. Whether it's landing on the moon or crossing the Atlantic. Innovation is still innovation. Whether it's the cell phone or the pyramids. There is nothing new under the sun. In the 19th century, uh, there were some Christians who thought that we were on the dawn of the millennium, the golden age. We were going to enter into this wonderful bliss of life. They had good reason. I, I don't know. Give, give them the benefit of the doubt, I suppose. But um, slavery had been abolished in the late 19th century. Alcohol was being brought under control through the temperance movement. The Industrial Revolution was... was um, impacting people's lives like never before. They were prosperous. They were wealthy. So these Christians, some of them thought, this is the golden age. And we've, we've made it. This is full. 20th century. First World War was dubbed the war to end all wars. 
Second World War. And you go on and on and on. Nothing is new. Novelty will not satisfy you because novelty doesn't exist. Seven. All is forgotten. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance, verse 11, of later things yet to be among those who come after. All of your achievements, beloved, all of your accolades, everything you do, that you work so hard for in this life, none of it will be remembered. None of it. Do you know who invented the zipper? I had no idea. We use it every day. Surely this man in his own lifetime, people are going to remember me. I invented the zipper. His name is Gideon Sundback. No one remembers. All is forgotten. The can opener? William Lyman. Okay. Walter Hunt. The safety pin. William Burt, the typewriter. Hmm. If they didn't remember them, they won't remember you. All is forgotten. You are not a big deal. That's what the preacher is saying. You're just not a big deal. And you know your life? Your, your great-grandkids may not even know your name one day. I don't remember my great-grandfather's name. I don't even know the kind of man he was. That's the reality, you see. That's the reality Ecclesiastes wants to wrestle with. Don't long for a legacy. Don't long for a life you want to have so bad. No. You're on the merry-go-round of life. Enjoy what you have now. <laughs> Enjoy it now. So what do we do then? How should we live? Well, I have two points of application takeaway, and then we'll be done. First, uh, prepare to die. Prepare to die. On this side of eternity, life is a mist. Here and gone. Creation is running its course, as we saw, as are we doing the same thing over and over again, thinking, what are we doing? And then we die. Our children will do the same thing we did. And they will meet the same end. Let's stop pretending this isn't true. All right? 
And let's embrace the unavoidable fact. Death will not stop at our parents. It will come for you. A couple years ago, I watched my father bury his dad. In a couple of years, I'm going to bury my dad. And my kids are going to bury me. And it's going to go by like that. Death teaches us how to live. It teaches us how to live wisely because the temporary actually matters. Death teaches us to live freely because we're not in control of this merry-go-round of the world. So live free. Don't, Don't clutch everything so tightly. And it teaches us how to be generous because it's all going to be gone. Live wise, live free, death says, and live generously. Death teaches us to have big hearts and open arms. It teaches us to to value the small things of life. Do you know your shoulders were not made for the weight of the world? Did you know that? They weren't made for the weight of your work. God did not make these things. So you could fret and be anxious about work and family and life and death. He made these things for your kids to crawl on. Right? He made your shoulders to give a brother and sister in the church a hug. He made your life to glorify him and to love the brethren. Prepare to die and thus learn how to live. It's going by so fast. We heard this week, um, I'm just going to take an illustration I heard this week uh, from James Dolezal. He said, um, you know, you're going to die one day and your body is going to be consumed with soil. I need more. And that soil is going to turn into grass. And then he said, and then some cow is going to come along and eat your grass. And I thought, you know, that's true. We'll stop it there. We laugh because it actually is humorous how serious we take ourselves sometimes when we're going to be in the belly of a cow one day. So prepare to die. Live well. Live well. Two. Hold on to Christ. Hold on to Christ all of your days. Did you see Christ in in Ecclesiastes 1? I'm testing your redemptive historical hermeneutic here. I see him. 
He's right there. He's the preacher. He's the son of David, isn't he? He's the king in the heavenly Jerusalem. And so it's Jesus who's speaking to you today. It's Jesus all throughout this book, and he's talking to you. He's speaking to you. Come, child. Come listen to the greatest wisdom, the very wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, come listen to me, and I'll teach you how to live, and I'll teach you how to die. And he says to you this morning, you know, you're on a collision course with death. And he's asking you this morning, do you want death to be gain? Because it can be. Life can be gain, and death can be gain. You come to Christ this morning. You come to Christ all of your life, and you hold on to him by faith. As you learn how to live and as you prepare to die, take hold of Christ in this confusing, frustrating, yet beautiful life. And all things in life take hold of him because one day you're going to die, but one day you shall live like you've never lived before. Your eyes will be open in the twinkling of an eye. All will change. All will change. And then you will say in Christ's face, Oh, my beloved, I'm full. I'm full. I'm full. You hold on to Christ in this life. And you enjoy what he gives you for his glory and your good. This is the merry-go-round of life. Let's pray. Oh, my gracious God, you are so worthy of praise because you are not like us. We're on this circuit of mundaneness, of repetitiveness, and we wonder what's it all for, stuck in time and locked in, in the mundane, but, but you are timeless, Lord Jesus. You're from everlasting to everlasting, and therefore you're the hope of the world. We praise you this morning for not being like us. And we praise you for entering into this circuit of creation to rescue us and redeem us from this fallen world. And one day, perhaps, the sun won't go around and around panting, but it will declare the glory of God, perhaps like it never has. Oh, God, we give you great praise. Establish us in the faith for your glory's sake.